When we look at pictures of our blue planet from space, it's perhaps easy for us to grasp that the oceans cover 71% of our world. But what these spectacular and inspiring images can't show us is how deep those oceans are. Sunlight is completely quenched by the top one kilometre of ocean water. And therefore, the blue appearance of our planet from space is really the reflection of that thin surface veneer. The deepest point in our oceans lies more than 10 times deeper than that, at nearly 11 kilometres down. But most of the oceans are not that deep, of course. So to grasp the reality of our world, we can look at something called a hypsographic curve. And that shows uh, the heights and depths of the solid surface of our world relative to sea level. And when we look at that, we can see that the average depth of the oceans is around 3.4 kilometres deep. That's roughly or a little bit more than two miles deep. And to look at it another way, from this hypsographic curve, we can also tell that more than half of our world lies beneath water that is more than 3.2 kilometres deep. So the reality of our blue planet is that it is, in fact, a dark, deep ocean world. Most of the surface of our planet lies beyond the reach of sunlight. Now, our species has been exploring the oceans for probably at least 40,000 years, if we consider events such as the first human colonisation of Australia. But it's only been in the past two centuries that we have developed the technology to chart the ocean depths and to actually get down into the ocean depths to explore their mysteries. And so what I would like to share with you this evening are how some of the techniques in how we explore the oceans today and some of the discoveries in the deep ocean that have already revolutionised our understanding of how our planet works. Because although there is a great deal for us left still to explore in the oceans, what we've already found so far is, I think, as amazing as the unknown that remains. Now, exploring anything begins by making a map of whatever it is you're interested in trying to understand. That could be a map of depths of the ocean floor, if you're interested in the geological processes that shape its terrain. It could be a map of temperatures of deep ocean waters, if you're interested in understanding ocean circulation. It could be a map of what lives where in the deep ocean, if you're interested in understanding more about how species disperse and evolve in the depths. So making a map is always the first step in our exploration. And you sometimes hear that we know more uh, about the moon and Mars than we do about the ocean depths. But that's not really accurate. We have more detailed maps of the surfaces of Mars and the moon than we do of the ocean floor because satellites orbiting the moon or Mars can measure the undulations of, of their terrain uh, directly using radar. However, seawater blocks the radio waves used in radar, so we can't use the same technique to map the undulations of the ocean floor directly to the same high level of detail. But having a more detailed map is not the same as knowing more about. The total amount of rock that has ever been collected and analysed from the moon to understand its geological processes is less than 500 kilograms. The amount of rock that's ever been analysed from Mars by rovers currently working on its surface and by very rare chunks of Mars that have broken off and eventually tumbled to Earth as very rare Martian meteorites is tiny. 
In contrast, thousands upon thousand times more samples of rocks, of sediment, of water, of life have been collected and analysed from the deep ocean, along with vast volumes of other data. So we really know far, far more about the deep ocean than we do about these other bodies in our solar system. Now, one of the first people to try to measure the depth of the ocean was Ferdinand Magellan, uh, when he and his flotilla reached the Pacific Ocean in 1521. So that's not too long before the birth of Gresham College, in fact. And sailors aboard Magellan's ship reportedly gathered up all the rope there was aboard, tied it all, joined it all together until they had a length that was about 700 metres long, and then lowered a cannonball beneath the hull. And when that cannonball showed no signs of touching the seabed, it was still swinging around freely on the end of all that rope, Magellan uh, declared the ocean to be immeasurably deep. Now, of course, we realised that with an average ocean depth of 3.4 kilometres, he would have needed considerably more rope uh, to have reached uh, the ocean bottom there. But one of the other things holding back measurements of the ocean depth beyond needing long enough ropes in the early days was being able to accurately determine your position, particularly far from land, because that's something that's fundamental to making a map. When you're making a measurement of the thing you're interested in mapping to understand, you need to know precisely where you are. So mapping the deep also really had to wait for developments in technology that improved the ability for ships to determine their position when way out of sight of land. For example, John Harrison's increasingly uh, accurate series of marine chronometers, of course, helped to improve determination of longitude developed during the 18th century. So by the start of the 19th century, oceanographers equipped with that kind of technology could start to make the first maps of the ocean floor. And among them, one of my heroes of early ocean exploration, Matthew Fontaine Mary who you can see here. Now, Matthew's older brother joined the US Navy, but unfortunately died of yellow fever in the service. And then against the wishes of his grieving father, Matthew followed his brother into the US Navy. And he served on several ships at sea, including the USS Vincennes, which was the first US Navy ship to circumnavigate the world. But at the age of 28, Matthew had uh, a bad stagecoach accident in which he broke his leg. And that put an end to his seagoing career. But by then, he had already published a couple of books on meteorology and navigation, and so he became superintendent of the Navy's Depot of Charts and Instruments, which later became the United States Naval Observatory. In that role, he improved the methods that were being used by US Navy ships to make measurements and observations at sea, and he collated all the information that was coming back from those ships, producing charts of, of winds, currents, and so on, and some of the first charts of the depths of the ocean floor. In 1853, he published a chart of the ocean floor of the North Atlantic. And at that time, each individual measurement made by a ship was a pinprick in such a vast unknown that inevitably his map needed rapid updating as new measurements came in. So in 1854, he published this map that you can see here, Maori's map of the North Atlantic, 1854. This included a whole new series of measurements made since 1853 by the USS Dolphin across the middle of the Atlantic, north of the Azores, so running along here. Now, on this particular map, the stippled, the darker stippled areas indicate shallower water. And what this map of 1854 indicated was that there was some sort of shallower plateau, particularly north of the Azores, slightly shallower than the deeper erosion basins to either side of it. 
This was actually a glimpse of something far bigger and more wonderful, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which we'll have a closer look at later. But at the time, this also looked like a promising place with this shallow plateau north of the Azores to attempt to lay the first transatlantic telegraph cable. And so this seafloor feature, this slightly shallower plateau north of the Azores, was nicknamed Telegraph Plateau. And I think it's the first feature of the deep sea landscape to be mapped and to receive a name. Now, the first seafloor telegraph cable was indeed laid across there in 1858. And it's perhaps hard for us to grasp the, the, the change that this wrought. Uh, it really was such a fundamental advance. I would put it up there perhaps almost with the printing press in terms of the changes that it meant. The Times exclaimed at the time, the Atlantic is dried up and we become in reality, as well as in wish, one country. It also inspired a, a whole poem by Kipling, published in 1893, called The Deep Sea Cables. Because instead of taking weeks for messages to be carried between continents on ships, now it was a matter of hours stuttered in Morse code along this transatlantic telegraph cable. Now, the first collection in 1858 only lasted for a few weeks, but lasted, more lasting collections eventually followed uh, in 1866. Now, laying of these telegraph cables was an important impetus for deep sea exploration in the late 19th century to understand the landscape of the ocean floor and therefore what might be good routes for laying this new communications network, really the birth of our, of our modern world. So that was the, one of the spurs for the famous expedition of HMS Challenger, you can see here, which went all around the world, 1872 to 1876, charting the ocean floor and also collecting specimens, investigating chemistry, biology, physics of the deep ocean. And also at the same time, the voyage of USS Tuscarora uh, in the Pacific from San Francisco uh, across to Japan, which although less well known than Challenger, achieved uh, several notable firsts in exploring the deep ocean. And Tuscarora, in particular, trialled a new kind of depth-sounding machine. Rather than using rope and so on, as we've heard about Magellan starting to do, the Tuscarora was equipped with a sounding machine designed by William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin. And instead of rope, it used piano wire to lower these weighted lines to make measurements of the ocean depths. And the way that these measurements are made is basically by looking at the rate at which the weighted line reels out. When that rate starts to slow significantly, that's an indication that the weight has arrived on the seabed. And they had very careful, carefully contrived tables of sort of rates of paying out to detect this. And the weight itself would collect a sample of the seabed sediment to indicate it had arrived at the seabed. Now, as a little aside here, we can perhaps thank someone called John Isaac Hawkins, born in Taunton in Somerset in 1772, for an unsung yet musical contribution to deep sea exploration. Because Hawkins invented a design of upright piano that became very popular amongst the middle class of the 19th century. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson owned one and wrote in its praise. And the popularity of ownership of these upright pianos led to the mass production of piano wire. And that made it uh, plentifully available and cheaply available for plumbing the ocean depths. Now, even with Thompson's sounding machine using piano wire and later refinements of it, 
Making a measurement by this technique was nevertheless a laborious process. It would involve stopping the ship for several hours, lowering this weight until you can detect that it's touched the ocean, ocean floor, hauling it all back in, and then moving on to make just one more measurement in another place. So the next big leap forward in our technology for mapping the deep came with the uh, invention of echo sounding in the early 20th century. That enabled ships like the Meteor that you can see here, German ship Meteor, uh, which led a particularly famous expedition in 1927, ships equipped with echo sounders could make measurements of the ocean floor almost continuously while they were steaming along, just bouncing pulses of sound off the ocean floor using electronics to measure the, the, the time interval between the outgoing pulse and its returning echo, and then knowing something about the speed of sound in seawater, converting that time interval into a measurement of ocean depth. So when HMS Challenger went around the world in 1872 to 1876, made a few hundred measurements of depth by lowering, lowering lines into the ocean. The meteor, not that many decades later, crisscrossed the Atlantic 11 times and made more than 27,000 measurements of ocean depth during that voyage, giving a much more detailed picture of the undulations of the deep sea floor. So as ships with echo sounders were plying the oceans in the 20th century, oceanographers were able to build up this much more detailed picture of that hidden landscape. And among them, another of my heroes of ocean exploration, Marie Tharp. And Marie Tharp joined the Lamont Doherty Ob Observatory in 1948. And at that time, women were not allowed to work at sea aboard US research ships. So during the 1950s, Tharp worked ashore collating the echo sounder traces sent in by ships crossing the ocean and building up much more detailed pictures of the landscape of the ocean floor, culminating in this beautiful global map of the ocean floor known as the floor of the ocean, published in 1977 in National Geographic magazine. And to me, this is as inspiring as one of those blue marble photographs of our world from space, because here it reveals that hidden landscape in its entirety for the first time. And I spent many hours poring over these maps in National Geographic as a boy, wondering about the strange sounding places that were indicated on them, the, the Reckianus Ridge, the Bouvet Triple Junction, none of which were mentioned in my geography classes at school. Now today, we have maps of the entire ocean floor at a level of detail of about five kilometers. We can see features like un larger undersea mountains and so on, mid-ocean ridges and what have you, ocean trenches, that are more than five kilometers across. And today's maps of the ocean floor are made using satellites. As although I told you satellites can't measure the undulations of the ocean floor directly using radar, what they can do is measure undulations in the ocean surface very, very precisely. And from those measurements, with an awful lot of maths and observations and effort, it is possible to subtract the undulations that are a result of wind and waves and tides and so on, and you're left with undulations that are actually a reflection of the hidden landscape far below because of tiny local variations in gravity. So if you imagine an undersea mountain somewhere beneath the surface of the ocean, the mass of that undersea mountain it gives you a slightly stronger local gravity, which pulls the ocean into a tiny bulge on top of it. 
In contrast, if you were above uh, an ocean trench where the solid mass of the, of the Earth is further away, is deeper away from you, then the slightly weaker local gravity, relatively speaking, would give you a relative dip in the sea surface above that. So it's possible now to read those incredibly subtle bumps and dips in the liquid skin of our, of our world and deduce the large-scale landscape of the ocean floor at a level of detail of about five kilometers. Now, if you want to see things that are smaller than that, we still use sonar from ships, but a refinement of the early echo sounders of the 20th century. These days, we use something called multi-beam sonar, which actually maps a broad strip of seabed to a level of detail of around about 100 meters or so. We can see features about 100 meters across in size, typically on these maps. Uh, here's one that my colleagues and I were involved uh, in producing uh, 10 years ago now. This is from an undersea ridge near the South Sandwich Islands, um, near, you know, just on the edge of the, of the Antarctic. And on it, you can see this spectacular seafloor crater here that is about a kilometre and a half across. That would not show up on any of the satellite-derived maps of the ocean floor. It's too small to be resolved by those techniques. But we can see it using multi-beam sonar from ships. And about 15% of the ocean floor has been mapped to this level of detail. It's hard to put a precise number on it. The data are in lots of different databases. And the amount is growing every day with ships out there, research ships out there, every day collecting more data. Now, if you want to see things that is smaller still, down to a level of detail of just a couple of metres or possibly even smaller, we need to take our sonars much closer to the ocean floor than aboard the ship. So we can put them on undersea vehicles, we can fly those vehicles as close as we dare to the ocean floor. The area we get to see at any one time, the closer we go, gets smaller, but the level of detail we can see increases. So using those sorts of techniques, around 1 20th of 1% of the ocean floor has been mapped to about a 1 to 2 uh, meter level of detail. And so here is a close-up from that previous map of an area that we mapped with an undersea vehicle. And on this, we can see features. There's a 100-meter scale there. We can see features the size of a house and smaller. And then we can investigate what those features are, what's going on there. Uh, so you sometimes hear, perhaps, that the oceans are only 5% explored or 95% unexplored. And again, that's not really accurate. Because what do we mean by explored? We have a map of 100% of the ocean floor, but only at a five kilometer level of detail. Meanwhile, if we think about a one to two meter level of detail, it's 100th of that, okay, of that times less, if you like, than, than, than the other uh, level of detail we have for the ships. So the 95% and the 5% really don't do it justice. It depends what do we mean by explored. Now, Making a map is the first step in exploring the ocean. And what maps do is show us where there are anomalies, where there are features that we don't understand, that don't fit with our current understanding of how the oceans work, of what's going on in them. So maps highlight anomalies. And so the second step in exploring the ocean depths is to investigate the anomalies that are revealed by our maps. And that usually involves getting out there, perhaps close up to those anomalies with a research ship and possibly diving with deep diving vehicles down to investigate them. So we can make very detailed measurements. We can test our ideas about what might be going on to explain these anomalies and expand our understanding of how the oceans work. So 
The first step, mapping the deep, that we can devolve to autonomous underwater vehicles, to robot, robotic drones, pre-programmed to go out and survey the oceans. And they're very good at doing that much more efficiently than using ships with a whole ship's crew tied up for that task. We can devolve this task to the robots. But when it comes to investigating the anomalies, we need human-directed technology. One of the forerunners of human-occupied vehicles for the deep, who led to the design of a very famous deep-diving submersible called Alvin. Alan Vine was the name of the instigator of that vehicle, is really named in his honour. In 1956, at a scientific meeting, talking about human-occupied vehicles to explore the deep, he said, yes, you know, I can understand that an instrument can be very good at measuring anything, but it's hard to imagine an instrument that could have replaced Charles Darwin aboard the Beagle. We need the creativity okay, of a human mind. We need it, still need a human-directed presence to invest, for the investigate the anomalies step in ocean exploration. The autonomous step can help us get to that step more quickly. It can help us to use the human-directed technology much more efficiently. But we still have to ultimately be involved in the investigation. So the technology to take people into the deep really begins with William Beebe and Otis Barton, who you can see here who dived in the bathysphere. And this vehicle you can see between them, that's Beebe on the left and Barton on the right. And they were working uh, off Bermuda, three campaigns, 1930, 1932, 1934, going deeper each time and eventually culminating in a dive to 923 metres deep, nearly a half mile down. And William Beebe, a fantastic writer as well as an actress, and he published a wonderful popular account of this work called Half Mile Down, which I really recommend to you. They were the first bathynauts, if we want to define that as people who go into the deep ocean. Deep ocean defined typically as greater than 200 metres deep. Uh, so they were the first of the bathynauts. And after their dives in the early 1930s, there was really something of an inner space race to then go progressively deeper and deeper. And I don't really have time to go into all the details of all the record-setting dives that followed, uh, but they did culminate really not that long after 1934 in the Bathysphere, 1960, in fact, 23rd of January 1960, Jacques Picard and Don Walsh reached the deepest point in the oceans, the Challenger Deep at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, just short of 11 kilometres deep. So we have had the technology to reach any depth in the ocean ever since then, since 1960. Now, today's human-occupied vehicles are much more sophisticated than the bathysphere and the early bathyscaphs. And here are a couple of them. Oh, and there's Don Walsh on the left there and Jacques Picard on the right and uh, standing on the top of uh, the Trieste bathyscaph there uh, in 1960. Modern vehicles are much more sophisticated. Here are a couple that I've been fortunate to work with in my research. This is Japan's Shinkai 6500, and this can carry three people down to six and a half kilometres deep. Uh, and I was able to go down to five kilometres deep to explore uh, very deep undersea hot springs uh, in the Caribbean with this as part of my research. And here is one of the mini subs that we used in the filming of Blue Planet 2 in the Antarctic to make the first dives uh, by a human-occupied vehicle to reach one kilometre deep. Uh, and of course, with Blue Planet 2, we had two of the mini subs, so one could film the other, uh, which was a rare opportunity. <laughs> I don't normally get to, to see that landscape actually lit up by two vehicles. Um, really spectacular to be able to see that. Now, today, we also have, in addition to vehicles that can physically carry people into the deep, 
And this is a feat of engineering because when you're inside one of these vehicles, you stay at normal atmospheric pressure. We don't have any of the problems of scuba diving and so on into the deep and decompression and so on. No, we stay at normal atmospheric conditions, cocooned by incredibly strong hulls from the pressure surrounding us. But we also have remotely operated vehicles these days with which we can send our minds, but not our bodies, into the deep ocean. So this is the UK's remotely operated vehicle for science. It's about the size of a family car. And unlike the human-occupied vehicles, the remotely operated vehicles are connected to the ship by a cable. And we stay aboard the ship in a control centre, in comfort. We can have bathroom breaks whenever we need them. We can have meals whenever we need them. We can work around the clock in shifts. We can work very efficiently, leaving this vehicle working on the ocean floor because it's not limited by human endurance anymore. We send the power down the cable. It's not limited by battery power either, which is actually what restricts the human-occupied vehicles. So we can do that. And these days, we can also now, there is a satellite link from the ship to shore, we can even live stream this exploration so scientists all around the world can take part in that exploration. And indeed, not just scientists, any of us can take part in this exploration. So, Oliver, if you'd like to cut us live now, let's go live to the bottom of the Pacific near Costa Rica. These are live images from nearly 1.3 kilometres deep. This is the research ship Falcor and its remotely operated vehicle Subastian, and they're diving uh, on the edge of the, the well, where, where it, it, go, it drops off from the continental shelf near Costa Rica, and they're looking for hot spots uh, of marine life on the ocean floor at this depth. So this is live. What a world we live in where we can do this. You can receive this on your mobile phone. <laughs> it's available for anyone to share and to be involved in. And indeed, the team aboard the ship like to sort of narrate and explain, and they'll take text questions over the internet to answer for people and so on. So we can all share today in exploring the deep ocean through this technology. What a spectacular deep sea coral we can see there. OK, so much as I'm reluctant to leave it, we'd better head back to the slides. <laughs> That's great. So what are some of the discoveries then that have come from this technology? Well, there are two that I'd like to highlight to you this evening that I think have fundamentally changed our understanding of how our planet works. The first harks back to that map made by Maori in 1854. Because, as we saw with the voyage of the Meteor 1927, that telegraph plateau north of the Azores was actually part of something far bigger. It was part of, here we can see the Azores, here's the shallower, the, the warmer colours on this map are shallower water. So here is in much more detail with modern techniques, Maori's telegraph plateau. And it is actually part of the mid-Atlantic ridge, which comes down from Iceland through the Azores and then continues all the way down the Atlantic and indeed into the South Atlantic. And as the meteor found, it then turns the corner towards uh, the Pacific, uh, the, the Indian Ocean. So not only was Maori's Telegraph Plateau part of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge in turn is part of something even larger still, the global Mid-Ocean Ridge. And this was first glimpsed by Marie Tharp when we look at things like that floor of the ocean map. So here is our Mid-Atlantic Ridge that we were just looking at. And sure enough, it turns up into the Indian Ocean. It splits and has a couple of branches off here. But one branch goes through the southeast Indian Ocean, uh, down near to Antarctica, and then comes up in the eastern Pacific. Okay, and actually, 
sort of nudges up against the land here and then actually breaks out again up here. This is our planet's greatest geological feature. It is 60,000 kilometres long. And until Marie Tharp pieced its existence together, no one really had a notion that it was there and of its full extent. As she said many years later, you can't discover anything bigger than that, at least on this planet. <laughs> now, what's so special about the Mid-Ocean Ridge? Well, what Tharp was able to see in the very detailed echo sounder traces that she was piecing together was that at the crest of the Mid-Ocean Ridge, you can't see it on this map, but in detail on her echo sounder traces, although it's a ridge, at the very crest there is a rift valley. And pretty much everywhere she looked, every time there was an echo sounder trace crossing this Mid-Ocean Ridge, at its peak was a rift valley, about a kilometre deep, and about 25 kilometres across, something like that on average. And that was a complete mystery, because this suggested that the ocean floor was rifting apart here, just like the Rift Valley of East Africa. Now that, in the 1950s, was scientific heresy, the idea that this could be happening. Alfred Wegener, back in 1913, had proposed his theory of continental drift, the idea the continents may be moving apart based on the similarities in coastlines between the continents. You could call a shift South America up, up, against, up against Africa here and see them join together. But here, Tharp had evidence from these echo sounder traces of a rift valley that was consistent with that. But Wegener's continental drift in the 1950s was really considered fringe science at best. And so her boss, Bruce Heason, literally sent her back to the drawing board when she drafted her first maps and showed this rift valley. Did not believe her. Then later, he plotted the epicenters of undersea earthquakes that had been located and showed that they, they matched up with this rift valley, as you'd expect, if that's where the seafloor was rifting apart. Jacques Cousteau was also sceptical of this idea initially, and then in 1959, his team lowered a camera nearly four kilometres deep to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and sure enough, he saw the Rift Valley in the photographs that Tharp had predicted, and he was converted to this idea. And eventually, this idea that the seafloor was rifting apart there fitted with other evidence, other maps of things, magnetic anomalies and stripes of rock either side of the ridge that, that show that they were formed at the same time and then rifted apart. It all fitted together to give us this modern idea or modern picture, really, of plate tectonics, the motions of the titanic plates of the Earth's crust. And in fact, what they're doing is they are being carried about, riding on convection currents in the Earth's mantle. And at the mid-ocean ridge, that's where they're being pulled apart. Okay, so it is a gigantic volcanic rift. Okay, and it's actually where, as they're pulled apart, new seafloor is created. Something has to fill the gap in those plates as they're pulled apart inexorably by those, by those uh, currents in the mantle far below. That something is molten rock that erupts along this volcanic rift, creates new ocean crust there. And at the other side of the plates, we now know that when a plate collides with another one, it subducts back down into the mantle and is eventually recycled. Now, this idea, this, this cycle, this resurfacing of our planet was really, uh, I think, as profound for Earth sciences as discovery of DNA was for biology. It was a Rosetta Stone moment. It's, it unified, it made sense of observations in everything from geophysics to paleontology and gave us our understanding of the dynamic world we live on today and it was revealed at the bottom of the ocean, really, by Marie Tharp. So, the Mid-Ocean Ridge was also the epicenter of another scientific revelation, a little bit later, the late 1970s, and here we're talking about the Galapagos Rift, a little bit of, of rifting seafloor, same process, just 
east of the Galapagos Islands there. And in 1977, scientists diving in the submersible Alvin there came across hot springs on the ocean floor, known as hydrothermal vents. They are like the geysers of Iceland or Yellowstone, but on the ocean floor, continually erupting super-hot fluid, mineral-rich super-hot fluid. Now, they were predicted that these things would exist and would be there on the ocean floor, and this is what the scientists were looking for. But what was a complete surprise when they stumbled across them in the submersible Alvin was that they were home or they were surrounded by lush colonies of deep-sea animals at a depth where there shouldn't normally be enough food sinking from the surface and getting eaten on the way down. There shouldn't be enough food at this depth to support such an abundance of life. So here are these, hydro oh, these hydrothermal vents. Oh, I should mention in passing, the first people to visit the deep mid-ocean ridge, uh, a, a little-known venture, perhaps, uh, called Project Famous, which stands for French-American uh, Mid-Ocean Undersea Study. They dived to the Mid-Ocean Ridge to explore it in detail, that investigate the anomalies step of ocean exploration with undersea vehicles, including the Batiscaf Archimede that you can see here. And afterwards, they wrote in the journal Science, the ocean floor is disturbingly different from what we had imagined. <laughs> and that was 1975. <laughs> okay, it's a very young science here. But okay, on to our hydrothermal vents. And you can see them here, if I move on to the next slide. Here are some that uh, I've spent time exploring with colleagues and investigating with colleagues. Uh, these are the world's deepest ones, five kilometres, 3.1 miles deep in the Cayman Trough of the Caribbean Sea. And those two red dots you can see there are two parallel lasers. That's 10 centimetres apart in that image. So we get these slender spires of solidified minerals were dissolved in the hot fluid gushing out of the ocean crust here. They build these what we call chimneys. Some of them are very slender, and they can be a couple of stories tall. And gushing out of them, this what looks like black smoke is very hot, mineral-rich water. In fact, at the very throat of this spire, where that stuff is gushing out, before it ploughs into cold seawater, it's 401 degrees C. It's the hottest temperature we measured. It doesn't boil into steam because of the pressure at five kilometres deep. But OK, hot springs on the ocean floor. And what's exciting about them, of course, is this abundance of life that we find there. So let me take you on a dive to the vents we just saw in that picture here. This is from the UK's deep diving remotely operated vehicle. Uh, this was an expedition I led there in 2013. Look at the abundance of life. We're five kilometres down here. We've got these astonishing shrimp in their, literally in their millions in this area. The whole area of these hot springs is the size of a couple of, of, of football pitches. There are these incredible anemones, that white fluffy stuff on the rock. Those are actually bacterial mats, filamentous bacteria that you could see uh, with the naked eye. So it's an astonishing abundance of life at this depth. There shouldn't be enough food to support that much life, but there is because what's going on here is there are microbes that are using chemicals in that hot fluid gushing out of the ocean crust as an energy source. Very similar to how plants use sunlight in the process of, of, of photosynthesis. Here we have bacteria and some other microbes that can use chemical energy in a process called chemosynthesis. And they, in turn, provide food for the animal life that we see in these colonies. And this is what I've spent much of uh, my career investigating. And in fact, it's like a global jigsaw puzzle. You know, I'll show you in a moment. We, we know about more than 200 of these sets of hot springs. They are dotted about the ocean floor very much like islands. And so like 19th century naturalists who used to go to islands above the waves and look at what lives at different islands and compare them to figure out how species disperse and evolve on land, 
we can use these colonies to do the same thing on the ocean floor, and that's indeed what I do with colleagues. And we find that in different regions of the world, we get different sets of species, and we're trying to understand what are the boundaries between them and why. So mapping, finding anomalies, doing all this kind of investigation, but here, mapping life. So since first observation, 1977, here's a, a, a graph showing the number of what we call vent fields, these, these island-like an island-like set of vents, and then it can be several hundred kilometres to the next one. We know and have investigated more than 200 of them worldwide. This goes up to 2010, and of course the, the graph has carried on since 2010. And at the same time, new animal species that have been discovered and described from these environments, it's now upwards of 400. If we look at the blue line and now think about species, it went in excess of 400 about 10 years ago, a little, little more than 10 years ago, and is still climbing today. So we are still discovering new species of animals as we explore these environments around the world on the ocean floor. And here are a couple that I've been involved uh, in describing with students. Uh, this is Rimicaris hibisi. This is the shrimp that you saw in that video earlier. It was described by Dr. Verity Nye when she was a PhD student um, that I co-supervised. And as an adult, it's a very unusual shrimp. Here you can see the adult shrimp. Size is about six centimetres long, is good size for a Rimicaris hibisi. And as an adult, it doesn't have eyes on stalks like shrimp normally do. Instead, it has a light sensitive patch on its back by way of a photoreceptor organ that can detect the very faint glow from those hot vents. And how does it live? Well. Uh, its mouth parts, its gills are festooned with those bacteria nourished by the dissolved minerals in those, in those fluids gushing out of the seabed. And it has a little brush-like uh, um, um, end of one of its appendages with which it brushes them off and eats them. <laughs> so that's how it lives. It, it kind of gardens bacteria on, it, on its body. Here's another species from those hydrothermal vents in the Caribbean. Uh, and one of my undergraduate project students, Russell Somerville, um, worked, this, worked on this for his marine biology degree project. Here's a species of eel pout fish. And the reason I show this is this eats Rimicaris hibisi. And here's a CT scan of it, and you can see the shrimp in its stomach. Uh, now, this is an interesting animal because we found the adults at those vents on the ocean floor in the Cayman Trough. And then the juveniles of the same species turned up 2,000 kilometres away, where a block of very bizarre methane ice pokes out of the seabed near Trinidad and Tobago. So like eels, do they migrate between these two habitats at different stages of their life cycle? <laughs> Who knows? That's one of the mysteries we have yet to investigate. Now, there is a, th a third step in exploring the ocean, and that is using our understanding. And that's something we're all involved in. Because you might not be aware of it, but you have probably all used the deep ocean, probably without realising it, today. If you have sent an email, you've used social media, you've visited a website, the chances are you have shared information with a computer somewhere on another continent. That information has travelled between your device and that server or whatever it might be via a modern-day network of seafloor fibre optic cables where the telegraph cables used to run. But the capacity of modern fibre optic cables is, is astonishing. You know, the first telegraph cables could stutter sort of 10 to 12 words a minute in Morse code down them. The latest transatlantic fibre optic cable just laid between North America and now coming into Spain, it's not even on this map, can live stream 72 million high definition movies simultaneously. <laughs> it's the most incredible increase in capacity, thanks to that technology. And 
This network, this seafloor cable network, carries 99% of our modern telecommunications traffic, not just the internet, but also phones. You phone someone on another continent, your conversation no longer bounces off satellites to get there. It's carried by this fiber optic network across the deep ocean. Now, this is a relatively passive use of the deep ocean. There's very little impact on the deep ocean, other than perhaps where the cables are actually buried in the seabed. Very locally, there's some, maybe some disturbance. But there are other things in our everyday lives that have far more widespread impacts on the deep ocean. Not least, of course, our rubbish, our litter. We've become very aware of this. Here's a picture from 2.3 kilometres deep in the Cayman Trough, a bin bag and a drinks can. And every ocean I have dived in, with the exception of the high Antarctic, I have seen visible litter of some form at the ocean floor, discarded nets, you know, bits of machinery from ships, plastic bags, drinks cans, bottles, you know, it, it, it's everywhere. And then there are the microplastic particles that larger plastics break down to and also generated as microplastics originally in some forms that we can't see from our underwater vehicles. And they are all pervasive. They have turned up in deep sea sediment cores everywhere, including the high Antarctic, where the larger waste, I'm pleased to say, I haven't seen it personally because there's an ocean current that there's a bit of a barrier to it. And also the Antarctic Treaty is very good at, at stopping rubbish from getting there or being generated there. But the microplastics are all pervasive. Now we've become much more aware of the plastics problem. We're starting to see initiatives to try and tackle it, things like the charge uh, on the reusable bags in the, in the shops and you know, things like the bans on the microbeads in cosmetics. But the microplastics, uh, there's an elephant in the room that's even smaller than microplastics, of course. And those are the carbon dioxide molecules that we are pouring into the atmosphere from our burning of fossil fuels. And they, of course, also have an influence on the ocean, including the deep ocean. So to give you some idea, this picture here was during the launch of one of those dives filming Blue Planet 2 in the Antarctic. And I use this because it hopefully shows how the oceans are such a crucial part of the climate system. They are connected to the atmosphere and they are connected to the cryosphere, the ice masses of our world. So as we put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it traps more heat there. And a lot of that heat ends up being absorbed by the ocean. That, in part, leads to, thermal, well, that leads to thermal expansion of the ocean, which accounts for about 50% of the observed sea level rise, in addition to sea level rise coming from increased flow of ice from land into the sea. 50% from thermal expansion of the oceans, and a lot of the heat from that climate change has ended up absorbed by the ocean. It also, that heat also interferes with ocean circulation. It is changing circulation patterns. It's reducing the amount of oxygen being carried by ocean currents from the atmosphere into the deep ocean. And these are all observations that have been made. And at the same time, carbon dioxide dissolving into the oceans, not, not just affecting it through heat, but actually dissolving directly into the oceans, reduces the alkalinity of the oceans, which in turn has effects on ocean chemistry and indeed on ocean life. So as we become more aware and we're doing things about, about plastics and understanding and become more, more conscious of the flow of that, perhaps we can, as a society, focus uh, even more so on the flow of carbon dioxide molecules. But of course, it's a much more difficult problem for us to tackle because it's involved so intimately with our everyday lives. Extracting resources from the deep ocean also, of course, has an impact in lots of different ways, not least things like deep sea fisheries or trawling of the seabed in deep water. So this picture is of a known illegal trawler that we encountered on an expedition in the very remote southwest Indian Ocean led by Professor Alex Rogers, now at an organisation called Rev Ocean. And we came across this illegal trawler on the top of an undersea mountain. 
and they were very reluctant to let us get in there and do science and so on. And the impact of these trawls on slow-growing deep-sea corals and the hundreds of species um, that depend on those deep-sea corals, like the ones we just saw in that live video, uh, they leave an absolute trail of devastation that will take centuries to regenerate. So we're also becoming aware of these sorts of impacts uh, as well. And on the horizon, we have the prospect of deep-sea mining. There are undoubtedly rich... Uh, sources of minerals that we need for our modern lives, things like copper, um, but also some of these what are called rare earth elements that we need for a lot of green technology, neodymium for magnets in wind turbines, things like indium that we use in the touch, touch screens of all those devices that we love. There are sources of those on the ocean floor that people are interested in chasing. And they exist in lots, in, in three different habitats. And each of those habitats are very different in ecological features. So the one I'm particularly interested in, of course, those hydrothermal vents that we've been seeing. Worldwide, about 250 of them are known now. Their total area is about 50 kilometres squared. That's half the size of Disney World in Florida. And that 50 kilometres squared worldwide is home to more than 400 species of animals that are not found anywhere else in any other type of habitat. So protection of active deep-sea vents on the ocean floor is something we are pushing for. It's a rather different prospect than maybe some of these other environments that people are looking at extracting minerals from. So we need to make sure that well-informed choices are being made for the future here. Because at the same time, the biodiversity of the deep ocean can deliver benefits for our everyday lives. So here's just one example, a headline from December 2016, a new treatment for prostate cancer based on a modified form of a chlorophyll molecule found in deep-sea bacteria. So it's just one example of new medical treatments inspired by understanding you know, how life copes with some of the challenges uh, in deep ocean in environments. And you know, here's another that's close to my heart. Here's another new species I've been involved uh, in describing. This one was described by Dr. Chong Chen, who was another of my PhD research students that I co-supervised. This is the scaly foot snail from deep sea vents in the Indian Ocean. And unlike any other snail on land or in the sea, it gets its nickname, scaly foot, because its fleshy foot is covered by metal plates. And its shell has a very unusual layered structure that has particularly good properties in resisting mechanical damage. And thanks to this composite sort of uh, um, structure that it has and the, um, the properties that emerge from, from the way it's put together, material scientists are, are getting insights to design better crash helmets, better body armour, things like that. So the biodiversity of the deep ocean, I like to think of it as like a library, a library of the ingenuity of nature. And rather like the Library of Alexandria, illustrated here, I'm concerned that we are playing with matches while we are browsing its shelves. We risk losing some of its volumes before we have had the chance to consult them. So the deep ocean, we have the technology to explore it and get into its depths. And it really poses us a challenge, I think, now, because it's not just a frontier for our knowledge. It's also a frontier in which we can explore who we are as a species, or perhaps who we would hope to be. We have a poor track record in choosing between chasing resources for short-term gain and preserving biodiversity and environments to continue to learn from them in the future. But if we think we're better than that, if we think we've grown in wisdom as well as technological capability, then right now the deep ocean offers us a chance to show it. 
the choices that we make there, why we explore the deep, and what we do with the knowledge that we gain will define its future and our own. Thank you very much. <laughs>